Hi, I'm Dave Perkins. And I'm Shari Tishman. This is the Thinkability Podcast, and we're glad to be with you again. Today, we're very excited because we have some special guests with us. We're really pleased to welcome our Project Zero colleagues, Dr. Carrie James and Dr. Emily Weinstein. Carrie and Emily are both principal investigators at Project Zero at Harvard Graduate School of Education, which is Dave's and my academic home as well. And they both have a really long and deep interest in young people's digital lives, their use of social media, and their overall digital well-being. As some of you listeners may already know, Carrie and Emily just came out with a new book called Behind Their Screens, What Teens Are Facing and Adults Are Missing. The book is based on really several years of groundbreaking research they've done, and it's getting a lot of attention and a lot of acclaim nationally here in the United States, as well as internationally. So welcome, Carrie, and welcome, Emily. We're really excited to be talking with you. Dave, you want to get us started? Thanks for me, too. As the name of this podcast, Thinkability, suggests, we are particularly interested in the ways the book connects to the theme of thinking specifically what you learned about teens thinking, about adults thinking, and what you learned about your own thinking along the way. So we have some questions queued up for you. But first, may we ask you each to pick one of the book's big messages and characterize it in a nutshell. Carrie, you want to get us started there? Sure. Thanks so much, Dave. And thank you, Shari, for having us. We're thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you both. So one of the biggest things that we learned in doing this research and and that we talk about in the book is that teens actually need and really do want help from the adults in their lives about digital issues. And it may not always appear that way because, you know, when we ask them questions, they may be disinclined to open up about what they're grappling with, both the good stuff and the bad stuff. But in this research, we really slowed down and listened carefully to teens. And we learned that part of the problem in our conversations with them is that adults often start out having those conversations start out in the wrong places. We we often have misguided assumptions We carry with us sweeping judgments about what teens might be doing on social media and on gaming platforms and on the internet more broadly. And we say things that come from a place of good intentions, but things like you're so addicted to your phone and social media is the enemy. And we found listening to teens that we really need new talking points so that we can actually open up conversations. And when we do, we hear from teens that things are much more complicated than they seem. We hear about the good parts, we hear about the hard parts, and that helps us be better positioned to give them the support they actually need from us. Many adults have an intuition that it just must be so hard to grow up with all of these new technologies. And we tend to channel a lot of this worry into anxiety about screen time in particular. And one of the things that Carrie and I learned is that while there are real tech pain points for teens, they aren't always what adults assume. And there really isn't one universal experience with screen time. And actually, screen time is not the most helpful way to understand or talk about what's going on and what's challenging. We really are so interested in the complexity, and there is so much of it. There are true upsides, legitimate challenges, and critically important ways that teens' experiences really differ from one another. 
even for you, you can probably think about a time when you spent an hour staring at your screen and at the end of it felt really inspired or connected to someone you love or curious and engaged. And then you can probably think of another time when you spent that exact same number of screen time minutes at looking at your device, but at the end just felt like, oh, I've like wasted my time. Or maybe you feel kind of lonely or bored or frustrated. A lot of these emotions are amplified for adolescents in part linked to what's happening for them developmentally that's really reflected or playing out with their screens. Wow, those are both very powerful nutshells, really interesting big picture messages. Thank you. And you know, as your book reveals beautifully, and you both allude to in what you just talked about, the digital dilemmas that teens face, as you point out, are often much more nuanced, and much more complex than we adults perceive them to be. I wonder if you could say something more about where you found, and perhaps unexpectedly where you found, complexity and depth in the quality of students thinking about these dilemmas? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking this question. Our entire jumping off point for this study um, that led to the book Behind Their Screens was our growing awareness that so many situations that teens and in fact all of us face in a connected world are dilemmas. They're situations that evade really straightforward, right, wrong courses of action. Um, and so we were really tuning into a variety of different things like personal dilemmas, questions that teens grapple with in particular, like does being a good friend mean being available whenever your friend needs you? And even if it comes at the cost of disconnecting for sleep or to spend time with others. So that's, that's an alive dilemma that a lot of young people grapple with and really think about. Then we heard about dilemmas and we, we see them unfold in the public sphere around community issues. If someone says something offensive in a private group chat, should you share it with other audiences so they can be made accountable? In other words, what's more important, the privacy of that communication or making them accountable? And then if we peel back another layer, what if they said that thing when they were 14 or when they were 12 or when they were 10? And what if sharing what they've done with another audience means that they experience a really high stakes consequence, like getting kicked out of a college or canceled by their peer group with no opportunities to learn or grow as a result? So these are really hard questions. And when we talked to teens, we found that their thinking about these situations was pretty complex and nuanced. They were well aware of the tensions and nuances in situations like this. And, you know, the example of cancel culture really highlights this. You know, teens talked about how the idea of canceling, for example, influencers, individuals who have massive platforms of millions of followers when they do something offensive, that can feel like the right thing to do. Deplatforming someone, taking away their audience and taking away their influence can be a way of correcting for some sort of harm. At the same time, the conversations with teens went in the direction of really acknowledging the risks of holding people accountable to something, especially when they're young, to a standard that is so high and really strips them of opportunities to learn growth and for forgiveness, the idea of restorative justice. So teens are like mired in some of these complexities and they're often seeing, feeling and talking about them in ways that adults are frankly oblivious to. Um, and a big concern for that we write about in the book and that has animated our work in 
developing materials for classrooms and schools is that adult messaging, both at home and in school, often doesn't sufficiently acknowledge those complexities. We often say things like, stand up for what you believe in on social media, or, or avoid politics on social media. It's a toxic train wreck without seeing that both stances can feel really hard for many teens today. Well, it's really heartening that teens not only recognize these complexities, but engage them thoughtfully. So looking at the puzzle side of it, what are some things the two of you have learned about typical thinking traps or cognitive distortions that teens may be at risk of falling into, as we all are, in fact. By thinking traps or distortions, we mean patterns of thinking that prevent us from perceiving something important about the way things really are. Social media can obviously be a highlight reel of sorts, presenting a lot of information about the people we follow, but all information that is really strategically chosen and curated to give a certain and typically a certain positive impression. And we're all naturally inclined to try and craft stories around the information we have, what we see. We're less good at thinking about what might be omitted or what we may not be seeing. And of course, this helps us in a lot of ways. It's how we make sense of a complicated world and try and distill narratives and um, process the information that we're exposed to. So those who have read some of Daniel Kahneman's work, like his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, will certainly be familiar with this idea. But the reality is that it's magnified in really major ways by social media. We can fall very easily into what Carrie and I call comparison quicksand, like this trap of thinking that everyone is happier than us. That's one, but there are others too. Like we hear from teens about how mind reading distortions can really contribute to anxiety with tech. This comes up when they think something like, hmm, my friend left my text on red. They, you know, they opened it, but they haven't responded. So they must be mad at me or I got fewer likes than someone else. So people must not think I'm cool in um, cognitive behavioral therapy. People learn how to identify and challenge thinking traps that don't serve them. So instead of jumping to a judgment like she must be mad at me um, or people must not think I'm cool, you get better at saying to yourself things like maybe she's just busy or not on her phone or Maybe a lot of people didn't see my post for whatever reason, or maybe it's just not my best post and it's not a reflection of how people feel about me. Changing our self-talk can be really powerful in general. And Carrie and I have been fascinated by the ways we've been hearing from teens about how their own thinking and self-talk related to social media can be harnessed and changed in ways that help them feel less anxious and more calm and more comfortable in their own skin as they're dealing with all of these new sources of information. Well, very good. And I guess it's our turn now, we adults. <laughs> what can teens teach us about thinking, especially the thinking traps we adults fall into when we try to understand teens' relationship with social media? What have we got to watch out for? Yeah, I love this question because it really gets at the heart of what is often a sizable gap between adults and teens about their social media lives. So we as adults often fall prey to significant distortions when it comes to digital life. It's understandable on a couple of different levels. I mean, number one, and I feel this as a parent, 
our intentions are to protect our kids from harms and to help them be successful today and into the future. And there are a lot of things that come up in digital life that feel like they put our kids at risk. The second is when we look at teens and our children's digital decision making, it often feels like we don't understand it, like it has an upside down logic and also the context that they're operating in, apps like Snapchat and Be Real and TikTok, Discord, Twitch, and what they're doing in these apps often feels like a mystery to us. So there are good reasons why we may fall into thinking traps. Because our protective inclinations really kick into high gear, we can fall prey to things like having a negative filter or all or nothing thinking, assuming that all of social media and even online gaming is bad or at best a waste of time, that you know there's nothing productive or learning rich in that. We also become really hyper alert to the risks. And the reality is there are risks. You know, there are risks of our kids being bullied, of having, you know, information that they didn't want to share with a larger audience leaked to a wide audience to having digital content linger into the future and reappear down the road in ways that can hurt them. But we can then fall into catastrophizing, really assuming the worst case scenario for our kids and then amplifying that when we go to provide them with support. And listening to teens and really trying to pause those assumptions and that worst case scenario thinking is really helpful and important. The realities, as we've been discussing in this conversation, are so much more complicated, and they really are attuned to the complexities in more ways than we often give them credit for. One really revealing question in our research is we asked teens, we had a youth advisory council, and we asked teens at the end of our meetings, every time we had a meeting focused on a particular topic, we asked what you most wish adults understood about this particular aspect of digital life, whether it be sexting pressures or digital footprints or friendship dilemmas. And their answers to that question were incredibly powerful and really revealed the things that as adults we need to be alert to. They said things like, just because we're on a device doesn't mean we're wasting our time. So, you know, that fear that they're just wasting their lives away on on digital devices or I wish adults knew that there is actually the possibility for real, genuine connections on social media. Although there are issues, it's also a really positive state. So those are just some examples. We have many more in the book, but as adults, really tuning into the details of teens' experiences and thinking helps us complexify our own thinking and ideally how we can be helpful. A really powerful list of of thinking traps that we can fall into as adults, you know, a negative filter or the all or nothing mindset or catastrophizing. You know, it strikes me that those are risks when we think about teens, but they're also risks we adults face when we think about anything and anybody. And actually, that brings me to a question I have about your own thinking about how you wrote the book. To me, one of the things that's so striking about the book is how transparent you two are about your own thinking, how thoughtful you are about how to approach it and how intentional you are about trying to be good thinkers. You've, I think, been exemplifying it that throughout this conversation. You know, you're probing your own assumptions. You're trying to look beyond the obvious. You're trying to stay alert to diverse perspectives. And you, in the book, you really model that for readers. It's, it's quite admirable. 
We're curious to know about the metacognitive dimension of your own experience writing the book. You know, how did you think about your thinking as you were researching and writing and going along? Was there a metacognitive evolution of sorts? What did you learn about your own thinking and, and about each other's thinking as you were writing and doing this work? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. It really, um, it really gives us an opportunity to think about the evolution of this project and how, as you say, how our thinking evolved over time. You know, we started off this project, as I said earlier, really interested in these situations that were coming up that defied really straightforward courses of action, and we wanted to lean into them. So we were super thoughtful about developing a survey that we shared with both teens and actually adults, parents and teachers. And we crafted the questions really carefully to try to get at some of those digital dilemmas we've mentioned throughout the conversation. And, you know, we really we knew that in the larger media literature that had um, been carried out to date, there were studies that looked at issue areas, but not framed around dilemmas or real tensions that were faced, especially by adolescents. So we knew that there was probably something missing. Our research could help fill some gaps. And we crafted our questions really carefully. And, you know, when the data came in, and it was a lot of data, we had perspectives from over 3,500 adolescents across the U.S., we were really awed by the sheer power of it, the kinds of things that young people were saying. And we were also humbled by how much more we needed to learn in order to make sense of the data. Um, so the data kind of told us that we needed help despite our years of training as qualitative researchers, as quote unquote experts. And it's not that we don't have expertise. So this is part of this evolution is in the thinking about our own expertise and our own role as researchers. But we really came to understand that we needed to partner with young people in order to interpret the data accurately. And, you know, so this was an internal realization, but we had a lot of external incentives for this. We were, uh, the funding that supported this research was this larger cohort of organizations doing youth voice and youth-centered work. So there was the motivation from uh, being a part of that community. Our book editor actually really encouraged us to bring more data into as we shared our book prospectus. And the pandemic had you know, happened at that moment. And we saw that as an opportunity to hear more from adolescents about how that social isolation and social distancing were affecting and creating new dilemmas for them. So all of that suggested the need to work more closely with youth to understand our data. And I have to say that evolution has really has been powerful and we won't go back to doing research kind of the old way where we collect data and then we go off on our own and, you know, trust just ourselves and our expertise to make sense of it because youth are experts on their own experience and our understanding of it needs to be enriched by having them at the table with us. I think we also, we, as Carrie said, we, we wanted to do justice to the complexity of teens' experiences but we also really wanted to provide enough think, enough transparency about our thinking and its limits and the limits of our data so that readers could really assess for themselves. We, we did not set out to use our research to tell people how they should be thinking or feeling about teens in tech. Instead, we really hoped that we would be able to offer richer insight into 
how teens think and to what this looks and feels like for them as they're coming of age in this radically connected, super digital world. And Carrie and I were really excited to be able to share how we were grappling with some of the dilemmas and issues a decade or so into thinking about them every single day. And I just, I don't think we could have really done this research any other way. I I remember when we early on shared some of our, um, we were sharing some of our research and some of the book findings with an academic group. And we started by saying something about what we regretted about how we had designed our survey and some of the questions. And, you know, Carrie said we crafted the questions very carefully. That's true. And it's also true that, of course, as soon as we were looking at the data, we saw so many ways that we were like, oh, we wish we had done this a little bit differently. And after the presentation, someone said to us, uh, someone said, came up to me and said, you know, that was that was just so unusual. Like who starts a presentation by 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 talking about the things that they feel like they did wrong. But I think so often academics get in this mode of feeling like we have to defend and champion our work in a way that we have to sort of have this short limitation slide right at the end and make sure all of our limitations are things that we can explain away or minimize. But this actually feels so limiting to us. And I think I, I think for me, at least, it really contributes to imposter syndrome if you feel like you have to be the expert and have done everything perfectly from the get-go. So ironically, I think it it's easier to be honest and vulnerable and transparent about our thinking and to and to really invite people along this journey with us and to view it more that we we want to bring people with us so that they can see what we're seeing because we feel like we've had just such an incredible position to be able to hear and see different stories. And we wanted to bring people on that ride with us rather than, you know, construct some reality and then just convince them of something. Thank you for that. Now, now we, us four, we all work at Project Zero, where we think a lot about teaching thinking skills and dispositions, and where we often use thinking routines as a tool for cultivating thinking dispositions. So what thinking dispositions do you especially recommend we attend to when we teach thinking to teens? And how can thinking routines help? Well, first, I'll just say Carrie and I are just so deeply influenced by your and Shari's work on thinking dispositions and the long history of work on thinking at PZ that has a dispositional emphasis. A big one that that comes to mind is slowing down. So much of tech is designed to push us to do more and move and think and act faster. And there are whole subsets of UX, user experience teams at tech companies that are focused on optimizing speed in our engagement and pushing us to move faster and faster. But of course, we know that good thinking often requires slowing down. And so Carrie and I have been really thinking about how that that disposition, that inclination to slow down is something that we can support through the kinds of thinking routines and resources that we're creating for adults to use with teens in lots of different settings. Carrie, do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, I'll just say that, you know, one of the one of the powers of thinking routines that I learned from Shari long ago is thinking routines actually help slow our thinking down. That's what one thing that is so incredibly powerful about them. So we've really taken slowing down and other relevant dispositions very seriously in our educating educator facing work. Uh, we've you know worked closely with Common Sense Media to develop materials for their digital citizenship education curriculum, and you know we really brought the thinking dispositions research 
and what's important about the design of thinking routines into that work. And it was so powerful, actually, to work with our colleagues at Common Sense Media and bring them on this ride with us to really understand how a dispositional lens shifts your understanding because they were really focused on that skills part of thinking dispositions and to really open up the thinking into uh, revealing the, the importance of inclination and sensitivity, the other parts of that triad of, of what makes a good thinker was really powerful. And we realized it's so important for digital citizenship education, especially given that so much of what we want to see in students thinking and decision making happens out of adults line of sight. So we interviewed an educator pretty early in the research for this study because we were trying to understand how educators were innovating around around digital citizenship education. And she was talking about how she approaches the topic of sexting. And she said, I'm not just going to have my kids memorize the definition, the legal definition of what counts as a sex. She's like, I want to I want to be supporting them for decision making at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. So the idea of when they're alone in their bedrooms and they don't they don't have adults nearby and they don't want adults nearby, but they get an inbound and they have to make a decision what kind of habit of mind or disposition will they be in? And we knew that thinking routines were really powerful at supporting dispositions to see the kinds of things we want to see, like slowing down, like exploring perspectives, like imagining different options of certain courses of action and their impacts. So we worked closely with Common Sense and designed a couple of different thinking routines that can be used for any aspect of life, but we think that they're particularly powerful for digital life. One is called feelings and options, and another is called take a stand. Those are just two examples, but we developed a library of digital dilemmas or scenarios that they can be paired with and invited educators to write their own dilemma scenarios to support use of these thinking routines. And, um, and we're really proud of the work that we've done. They're in the thinking routines toolbox, but they're also part of the common sense digital citizenship curriculum. Wow, it is so exciting to hear the way you've taken some ideas from Project Zero, brought a whole lot of your own ideas in and just really expanded them out and deepened them in new ways. I love your thoughts about thinking dispositions, helping uh, thinking routines, helping us to think more slowly. And as your work shows, when you, when you invite people to slow down, you get tremendously rich thinking. One thing that our listeners should know, I think, is that while there's been tremendous positive response to your book, a lot of that positive response has come from youth themselves who see themselves beautifully represented in your work. So that's, you know, I think a real sign that um, you're inviting young people to slow down and look with them at their thinking has been tremendously rewarding and important to you. We are pretty much coming to the end of our time. So I just want to say thank you to uh, both of you. It's been really exciting. There's we had another 10 hours, we would have another great 100 questions to ask you, but we, you've given us an awful lot to think about. And I wonder if you'd like to say a word to our listeners about where else they might be able to learn more about your work. You mentioned a bit, but maybe you want to say a, a couple more words. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. So if you're an educator, you can find the thinking routines that I mentioned a moment ago in the Common Sense curriculum, commonsense.org. 
forward slash education, and you can search on their site for digital dilemmas related resources, and you'll find um, everything you need there. If you want more information about our book, as well as a reader's guide and some, some information about some current research projects underway, as well as some press we've been doing, you can visit BehindTheirScreens.com. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. And as always, at the end of these sessions, we face the big question, what next? So coming up next time on Thinkability, we're going to explore the topic of, ta-da, thinking routines. And folks, you've just heard a little sample about what some of that might be about. It's a theme we and our Project Zero colleagues have been working on for many years now. I think I should say decades, actually, because it's had a long life. There's a good chance that if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you've heard of thinking routines and you may use them personally. And if you're a teacher, use them in your teaching. Thinking routines are sticky. We'll be exploring what makes them so attractive, what makes them work, and how to get the most out of them. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And you can find more Thinkability episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much again, Carrie and Emily and Shari. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Dave. And thanks again, Carrie and Emily. It was really, really a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much for having us.